We just sang that you are holy, holy, holy. You are the Lord God Almighty. You're the everlasting one. You're the creator of heavens and the earth. With the word you spoke and there it was, and with the word you still maintain everything there is. Mr. Lord, as we come before you now, we're asking that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. We're asking, Lord, that you would help us to understand a little bit more about your love for us, your jealous love over us. I pray, Lord, that you'll lead us and guide us and may your spirit take in more fully about what this word, your word has to tell us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, here are some common phrases, common statements that kids would hear from their parents. And, you know, parents, you know, we really mean well, don't we? (laughs) Right, guys? Right, kids? Yeah. But for those of us who have kids or have adopted them, how often do we tell them what our parents told us? Such as, if you tell a lie, what? Your nose will grow. Or, I hope you have a kid just like you. Or, if you cross your eyes, they'll stay that way, yeah. Or, touch a toad, you get warts, yes. Or, drinking coffee will stunt your growth, right? Maybe that's why I'm so short. I don't know. But But you know, there are good things our parents have actually told us that are really helpful. For example, look both ways before crossing the street. Well, in full disclosure, there was one day that I didn't look both ways, and I got hit by a car when I was a kid. What's the magic word? Finish what you start. It's another one. I love you. And finally, One that most parents tell their kids, don't talk to strangers. But why is that? Why should kids not talk to the strangers? It's pretty obvious. Because how many horror stories have been told, let alone the ones that have not been told, about strangers befriending innocent kids only to have things done to them beyond horror? How many are scarred for life because some have failed to heed their parents' advice? Don't talk to strangers. Well, as terrible as things can be regarding the victims in their bodies and the souls, the worst abuse is spiritual deception. How many would we call miracle stories have we heard regarding those who have been horribly abused and then they turn to the Lord Jesus for salvation and they are completely changed? Now, I'm reminded in 2 Corinthians 5.17, we studied this a few weeks ago. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Anybody who receives salvation in Christ is a new person. God can heal the body and God can heal the soul and God can restore. And our God is mighty to save. But a person who is spiritually deceived by false teachers, especially those who began to follow Jesus, but fell away and went after another God, another gospel, another Jesus, and remained there, what about them? When someone is physically abused, God can heal. But when someone is spiritually deceived permanently, 
where are they to go? What is to become of him or her? This is the issue that Paul was facing on behalf of his beloved Corinthians. As we will see, Paul had a great love for the Corinthians, but also a great fear that they were in the process of falling away from the Lord. They were entertaining strangers, unaware. Today in our passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 1 to 15, we're going to see Paul's concern about his beloved Corinthians, entertaining strangers, the false teachers, unaware. And they were unaware in three ways. First, the Corinthians were unaware of the real relationship that they had with the Lord Jesus. And this is found in verses 1 to 6. Second, the Corinthians were unaware of a primary motive of these false teachers, a motive that Paul thoroughly exposed in verses 7 to 12. And finally, the Corinthians were unaware of the spiritual identity of the strangers that they were entertaining in verses 13 to 15. So let's read together 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 1 to 6, to see the kind of relationship that the Corinthians had with the Lord and also the kind of relationships that, that the Corinthians had with Paul and vice versa. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do you bear with me? For I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as a serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one that we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I'm not so much in knowledge. Indeed, in every way, we have made this plain to you in all things. So let's look at a couple of observations here in this passage. What kind of relationship did Paul have with the Corinthians? Kind of like one of a father-daughter relationship. Paul told the Corinthians that he became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. See, because Paul gave the gospel and they became Christians, and Paul considered himself a spiritual father of the church. As a Corinthian spiritual father, he took a vital interest in seeing them as a church remaining faithful to the one he betrothed them to, to their husband, the Lord Jesus. Now, if we don't understand the culture of the day and we think about betrothal, we're going to miss something vital. Because the word betrothed in the culture back then means, functionally speaking, to be legally married. Married in all ways, as has been said, except for that which leads to family. Now, what does that mean? Simply put, the betrothed couple, even though they're legally married, they can't consummate the marriage until the wedding. And during that time, the bride is to remain pure, a pure virgin, saving herself for her groom, her legal husband. Think Christmas. Think Mary and Joseph. And so here's Paul. As their spiritual father, his vital interest is in seeing his spiritual daughter make it to the wedding as a chaste virgin, 
waiting for the time when Christ will come and take her as a church to himself. But Paul had a problem with the Corinthians. They were entertaining strangers as in potential spiritual suitors. It was as if the betrothed Corinthians were allowing other spiritual persons to entice them to commit spiritual adultery, to violate their betrothal with their husband. Remember how he described these suitors. First, Paul described and reminded them of what happened in the Garden of Eden. The serpent lied to Eve, and she bought the lie. And the rest that we know now is history of horror. Think about our fallen world. It's horrendous, isn't it? But notice the serpent engaged her mind. And Paul makes this connection regarding the Corinthians and the false teachers. The false teachers were speaking enticing lies to the bride of Christ. And the Corinthians were torn. And Paul was afraid for them. And he experienced jealousy over them. And jealousy, though, as in a fear that any exclusive, healthy marriage relationship has. Jealousy is part of that. Those of us who are married, we know this to be true, right? Now, we're not talking about jealousy in being overly possessive of the person. We're talking about jealousy being, in, being possessive of the relationship, of the marriage. But for all of us who have ever been married or who are liable to be married, jealousy is a normal part of marriage. And this jealousy motivates us to guard the marriage carefully, to maintain the exclusivity of that marriage. But this was Paul's attitude, though. And by their lies, the false teachers were in the process of leading the Corinthians away from their husband. Well, how so? The bottom line is they were presenting another Jesus. If it's another Jesus, it would be then another spirit and another gospel that goes along with that, a gospel that cannot save, a gospel that leads them in the wrong direction. And the result is apostasy, falling away, not just from the faith, but falling away from Jesus. And Paul was bewildered. And one would think that the first time the Corinthians had heard a counterfeit gospel, a false Jesus, that they would have immediately turned away and they would have slammed the door in the faces of these false teachers. But not only did the Corinthians entertain these false teachers, they were beginning to get mesmerized by them. And that's a problem. And speaking of problems, Paul knew that he could not compete with those whom he called super apostles in his oratory skills. See, Paul admitted he couldn't talk so good, right? But now I find it pretty funny here that Paul was injecting a little bit of biting, humorous sarcasm here. Paul called these false teachers super apostles. Certainly they can move a crowd with their speaking ability, but were they super apostles? Were they even apostles? And Paul's going to tell us, no, they were not even true apostles at all. So I think he poked some fun at these so-called super apostles. Paul here was a master at highlighting absurdity with absurdity. First in verse 1, he began this section by describing what he was doing as foolishness. And I can imagine that if Larry Boy was a thing back in Paul's day, that he would not call them super apostle. 
No, I think he would label them as thupropapos, as in Larry Boy's unique style. I can hear him say in mocking tones, I am that thupropapos. But second, Paul described himself as unskilled in speaking. And this word unskilled in the original language is idiotus. What does that sound like to you? Could it be that Paul was actually calling himself an idiot in standing up to these thupropapos? Well, of course, the actual definition of idiotus in the original language is one who's like an apprentice in the presence of a master. But Paul made a plain. He did not consider himself inferior in any way to his opponents. Again, he was using biting sarcasm to highlight the absurdity of the false teacher's claim of apostleship. Or should I say, apostleship. But can you see yourself here in this passage? I can. I can see us in two ways. First, Every true disciple of Jesus in every local church, including Grace United, is betrothed to our bridegroom. His name is Jesus. We're waiting for him. Isn't that true, men and women? This is in part of what the return of Christ is all about. One day our heavenly bridegroom will be here. So what does this mean for us? In a word, faithfulness to our bridegroom as we await his return. See, by becoming a Christian, it means by definition that we enter into an exclusive spiritual relationship with Him. No idols. We entertain no other gods because that is what spiritual adultery is. It is following after other gods. That's idolatry. It's spiritual adultery. And time fails us. If you've been scratched the surface of all that God says about this sort of thing. But let me encourage you by way of, of really strong encouragement to read the book of Hosea this week. Hosea is just an amazing book about how God treats his adulterous people and his compassion on them as well. So again, our relationship with our bridegroom is to be a loyal one. It's not a perfect one, unfortunately but a loyal one. So a question. For those of you who have had a marriage experience, did you ever experience perfection in your marriage? I don't see any hands. <laughs> no, me neither. <laughs> and, you know, I, I sometimes amaze, am amazed at how much my beloved puts up with me. <laughs> you know, it really is amazing. But why do marriages stay intact? Is it because of Perfection. Not at all. It's loyalty, isn't it? It's loyalty to one another. It's loyalty to the covenant that we've made with one another in the sight of God. And so as followers of Jesus, let's stay loyal to Him. No other gods. We are His betrothed. Let's live like it. I see us also in this picture a second thing. Every person who has a mentoring relationship with another Christian is a spiritual parent. Did you know that? Every Christian. This is certainly true if you were the, as were the last link on the chain. You know, you share the gospel with somebody and they, they as it were, pray the sinner's prayer and say, I want to follow Jesus. You know, and, and by the way, it is really the last link on the chain. 
you know, it's rare that a person would come and present the gospel to somebody. They'd never heard it before, and then all of a sudden, here they are following Jesus. It, that's a rare thing. It's almost impossible because it takes several encounters of a person to hear the gospel. And so really, if a person shares the Lord with somebody, they're really the last link on the chain. And so guess what happens if that happens to you? You become a spiritual mother, spiritual father. But also, it's the same thing is true if you are in a mentoring relationship with somebody who's already a Christian. Think about Timothy and, and Paul's relationship with him. See, Timothy was already a disciple of Jesus when he met Paul and when Paul met him. His mother and his grandmother led him to faith in Christ. But Paul called Timothy, my son, in the faith. Now, why is that? Because Paul was then able to disciple and mentor Timothy. He said, you're my son in the faith in 1 Timothy 1-2. So we see how Paul agonized over the Corinthians and sought to help them stay loyal to Jesus. And we are too as well. With the ones that we are mentoring, we are to primarily pray for them. That's, that's the number one thing that we are to do as mentors with those who are trying to help become like Jesus. The secondary means is to live an example before them. What did Paul tell the Corinthians? He said, follow me, finish it, as I follow Christ. We need to be those kinds of people. And let's say, no, I can't do that. I can't say that, no, no, if you are a Christian, you're to be following Jesus, following Jesus wholeheartedly, and then you can tell those that you're mentoring, follow me as I follow Christ. Third is to encourage them, again, to follow you as you follow Christ. Now, there's a whole lot to be said. Now, we talk about this every month at our, our brown bag lunch, but again, a whole lot to be said, but we need to keep going here. But we need to live our lives as faithful disciples, ourselves, and then to pour out our lives for the sake of those that we are mentoring. Now, having seen how unaware the Corinthians were in their, of their relationship to Paul and to Christ, Let's now take a look at how the Corinthians were unaware of a primary motive that the false teachers had concerning the Corinthians. Let's look at verses 7 to 12, 2 Corinthians 11. He said, Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted? Because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge. I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and I was in need, I did not burden anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. And as the truth is in Christ, in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. And what I'm doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasting mission, boasted mission, they would work on the same terms as we do. But did you catch it? Did you catch the motive that they had? The primary motive of the false teachers that they had in trying to woo away the Corinthians from the truth of the gospel can be found in a phrase, follow the money. Notice what Paul is doing here. His tightly woven argument about money in his ministry is a complete contrast of that of the false teachers. Paul's deliberate approach was to preach the gospel 
for free. He was not going to be a burden to the Corinthians in any way, shape, or form. He would rather take support from any other church, any church at all, just not the Corinthians, just so he would not be a burden on them. In fact, he intimates that he wouldn't take their money even if it was offered to them. Indeed, the only reason he asked the Corinthians for money was for what reason? You remember this? It was that Judean famine relief. And this was not for money's sake, though. He wasn't just amassing some money. It was to demonstrate unity between Gentiles and Jews in the body of Christ. Across the miles, another continent. And Paul's reason for boasting in this region here was this very thing that he did, and he would continue to do this. He would preach the gospel for free to the Corinthians. He would minister to them for free. The false teachers needed to be called out for who they really were. They were greedy. But the Corinthians were not going to call them out. Why do we know that? Because they were entertaining strangers unawares. The false teachers, without a doubt, though, they wanted to get paid. And their standard across the industry was, hey, we all get paid, right? So you've got to pay us. But what was Paul's thing? No. But Paul preached for free regarding the Corinthians, and he was shouting it from the rooftops. I am not going to receive anything from you guys. My brothers and sisters, though, do you realize how offensive that would be today and how offensive it probably was in Paul's day? Think about it. The Corinthians did not help with Paul's expenses. Apparently, they never had and definitely would never do it in the future because Paul would not take it, more than likely. But what is Paul's response to this? Boasting in the regions of Achaia, which was their home, Paul would not take one shekel from the Corinthians. Can you imagine what probably went on in the minds of the faithful Corinthian believers? Probably the same as someone were to do that today. What would that sound like? Paul, I want to give you this money. Or, you know, minister, I want to give you this money. And they're saying, no, I'm not taking it. I'm not taking it all. And then what do they do? They go away and say, hey, that church didn't give me anything. What would that be like? Probably very offensive. And do you think that in Paul's day that, you know, when Paul would ask for the, the famine relief money, do you think that might have a little bit of an impact, that they might not give as much? Because the news was spreading far and wide that they were not going to receive or give any money to Paul. And Paul was not going to take it from them anyway. What would the neighbors think about the Corinthians? <laughs> Pretty stingy, guys, right? Hey, Paul gave you the gospel, but you're not willing to help him? Really? No wonder what Paul wrote, verse 11. And why? Because I do not love you? God knows that I do. Well, Paul, you've got a fine way of showing it if you're not even going to take anything that I offer you. But it was not about the Corinthians here. It was about Paul exposing the false teachers for who they were. It may have caused his dear friends to doubt his love for them, but Paul had much bigger fish to fry. He was committed to undermining the claim of the false teachers, and as we can see, such was not the case, that they were on the same level as Paul and his friends, these false teachers, not by a super long shot. 
Paul wanted to expose their hearts that the false teachers have a huge financial motive in trying to bring the Corinthians to their way of thinking and separating them from their money. Truly, the false teachers were making money off of Jesus. That was the issue. And Paul was saying, I want to expose this. And I want to expose it as much as I can. And so I see in these verses, though, a very great thing on one hand and a cautionary tale on the other for us. It's a great thing because the false teachers would be shown for who they are, greedy for the things of this life, and they will be found out. Because the false teachers became known for their primary motive to increase their profit margin. And doubtless, Paul wants to shut these false teachers down by hitting them where they live in their pocketbook. But I also see this as a cautionary tale for us. Again, why would Paul write verse 11? Again, because he knew how the people would feel over this. That some would misjudge his motives for letting everybody know that the Corinthians never paid anything to him. Anything. But the Corinthians paid the false teachers. Remember, that's what they wanted. The Corinthians or the false teachers wanted payment. And the Corinthians would misjudge Paul's motives. That's why he wrote verse 11. But how often are things not as they seem? You come into the fellowship hall on a Sunday morning, you're excited about the Lord, and you want to serve on that day. It's a gorgeous Sunday, and you know it will be a great day. You come in for Bible fellowship time, everything's great, until, until your brother takes deep offense at a comment that you made during Bible fellowship, and so much so that he refuses to even talk to you about it. Deep offense. And no matter what you do, no matter what you say to this guy, he doesn't talk to you. He just kind of sits off in the corner. The problem is that your comment brought up a brother's pain and his very intense moments that he experienced more than a decade ago. But he's so painful, he, he just doesn't, he, he doesn't want to talk about it. And so what has happened here? This brother has misjudged your motives by misjudging your words. And now there's broken fellowship between brothers. But what was your motive for sharing this? Were you going to deliberately hurt this brother? Is that why you were making that comment? Absolutely not. All you wanted to do was to to contribute and help your brothers and sisters in the fellowship. And many were helped because they told you. But the cautionary tale really is obvious, or at least ought to be. Make sure that you truly love your brother. Make sure you truly love your sister. Remember what love is. It is patient and kind. It keeps no record of wrongs. In other words, give your dear brother, give your dear sister the benefit of the doubt. Avoid at all costs misjudging their motives. We don't have the power. We don't have the authorization to judge motives, do we? We can only judge actions and we can judge words. As Paul says in Ephesians 4, 3, he says, With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Well, the third way the Corinthians were unaware as they entertained strangers is found in verses 13 and 15. So let's read these verses. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, 
disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. The Corinthians, indeed, were unaware of the nature of the false teachers. How do we know that? Because they still have them hanging around. This is what was animating them, their nature. They weren't thuperapothals. They did not represent the Lord Jesus. They were false apostles. They were deceitful workmen. They promoted a gospel that did not save. They, Satan's servants, disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Do you know any servants like that today? Do you see it? And this is really the bottom line for Paul. God gave him wisdom and insight to look into the unseen world as to what was really going on. These false teachers were Satan's servants, and he was able to to call them out on this. He called them these things. No wonder they said the things that they said. No wonder they did the things that they did. Satan's primary objective, as the Lord Jesus said, was to steal and kill and destroy. So the Corinthians should have been surprised at the ongoings of these false teachers, or should not have been, I should say. But tragically, they entertained these strangers unaware. They were attempting to lead people down the path that leads to hell. But the end of these false teachers will correspond to their deeds. Even as the Lord Jesus tells us in Matthew 7, 20-23. And so I want us to turn there, Matthew 7, 20-23, because I, I, we need to see this in our Bibles. You know, we think of Jesus as nice and gentle and, and, and just kind of getting along with everybody and so nice. But here's Jesus. On day of judgment, they're going to stand before him. We are going to stand before him. And these false teachers are going to do the same thing. And here's what Jesus says. You will recognize them, the false teachers, by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. These words of our Lord ought to be watchwords for us, especially when it comes to the false teachers of our day. The Lord Jesus is deadly serious about this. There will be actual flesh and blood people that He will tell them to depart from Him into eternal fire. There's a day coming when that's going to happen to many people, including false teachers. The false teachers of our day don't just pronounce and promote something that's clever or something that's just like fodder for a religious discussion. No, this is deadly serious stuff. Any teacher bringing teaching that does not conform to the truth is to be shut out of our lives, regardless of how much charisma they have, regardless of how much apparently they do miracles. How do we do that? We talked about this last week. 
We take them off our Facebook posts, right? We, we, we don't listen to their podcasts any longer. We stop buying and listening to their books. They should not have any access to us. The truth of the matter is that we become what we behold. What we fill our minds with when we have the choice goes far to shape our character. There is no neutral ground here. And so, what can we take away from this passage? Chock full of warning and encouragement. Remember who you are, Christian, as a betrothed member of the bride of Christ. He will come again, and he is looking for a bride who has been loyal to their or during their betrothal. We need to make sure that we don't misjudge the motives of our fellow Christians, our fellow servants. Let's love them. Let's give them the benefit of the doubt. And finally, let's be ever more committed to reality. You know, it'd be easy if Satan's servants were obvious, wouldn't it? But no, they have to disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. And this goes really to every area of life, doesn't it? Fake news is what comes to mind here. Every major issue of our day has something to do with what happens in our minds. They're trying to persuade us, whoever that they are, they're trying to persuade us to join their team. And it begins with our minds. And so what will it be? What will, we're at crossroads. What will it be? Following after disguised servants of righteousness, disguised, or following the real servants of righteousness, the truth. Let's make sure that we follow our parents' simple advice. Don't talk to strangers. Don't give lies any lodging in our minds or our hearts. And I think it's very appropriate if we remind ourselves of God's spiritual thought checklist. You know, He's given us a checklist of what to think. Now, we affectionately call it around here what? Thropograph. Thropograph. This command is found in in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, and it's vital for making sure that we don't listen to or talk to strangers. And so say it with me, if you will. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, and is of good repute, if there is any excellence and anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Let's pray. Lord, we are in a battle. And we so appreciate the fact that you have shared this truth with us. There are deceitful workers. There are those who are disguised as servants of righteousness. I pray, Lord, for us that your servants will be able to detect the truth from the error that we will not anymore listen to strangers. Lord Jesus, we want to listen to you. You are the good shepherd, and you tell us the truth. You've also told us who we are. You told us that we are your betrothed, that we are your, that we are your bride. We are waiting for you to come back. And we need to keep ourselves pure. We need to keep ourselves, we need to prevent ourselves from going after 
idols, which is spiritual adultery. Let's call it what it is. Lord, I pray for each one of us that if we've been dabbling, if we have actually even gone over, Lord, it's never too late to come back. I pray, Father, that you would help us this day to examine our hearts. May your spirit examine our hearts to let us know exactly where we are with you. And then, Lord Jesus, may we come to to you. May we enjoy your presence. May we realize anew and afresh of how much you love us and what you have done for us to secure the relationship that we have with you that we enjoy. I pray, Lord, that you help us to engage in the battle and not to grow weary in doing so that we will take the weapons of warfare that you have given us and that truly, Lord, we may wage the warfare that you called us to wage. I thank you now, Lord, for this time as we give, that this giving will be an act of worship. And Lord, knowing that we can never outgive you, we thank you, Lord, that you have prompted your people to give. And we've been able to do that. And we've been able to, to help people like our brother David. I pray, Father, for him and for his families as well. And Father, also as we sing, Help us, Lord, to sing with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength as we are reminded, Lord, uh, and we're mindful of even in our country, there are places where we cannot sing to you. Help us to be able to sing. And we thank you, Father, for these things. In Jesus' name.